You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. You may be seated, church family. Good morning. Um, I just want to say this up front. I think that we have a smoke detector that decided to start beeping back here um, on the week that we have a text about demons. So uh, there you go. There you go. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm one of our pastors here at Redeemer. I have the privilege of uh, leading us and preaching and vision and so excited about what God is doing in our church family right now. If you're a guest with us, it's a great time to jump in and and be involved in what the Lord is doing here. Um, A couple of things before we get back into the text. A couple of things I want to tell you about. One is if you are a partner, if you're a committed partner here at Redeemer, uh, we have a partner meeting next Sunday. It'll be immediately following the gathering, and it's a really important one. Um, so do everything you can to be here for this one. We're going to give you some updates on the fall. We're going to talk about, uh, even as elders, just what we sense God is doing in our midst right now as a church. We'll revisit some of our history uh, over the last few years and just where we sense we are and what God is doing. We're going to give you a financial update that's important that you'll want to hear. And so make sure that you can be here for our partner meeting. One of the things that we're going to talk about at that partner meeting is that on September the 10th, we are going to be moving to two services on Sunday morning. So just mark that on your calendar. Um, I don't need to tell you, we have as many chairs as we possibly can fit wide and deep in here. Uh, You probably have trouble finding a parking spot uh, and or you have realized that we are out of room and Redeemer kids back there on most Sunday mornings. So um, construction is expensive. So rather than uh, trying to figure out how to make more space, we're going to make more space by adding another service. So we'll talk more about that at the partner meeting. Just save that date, September 10th. Uh, we'll be adding two services. No longer will this 10 a.m. service exist. We'll have a 9 a.m. and a 10.45. Identical services, just two different service times, okay? All right. Well, if you have your Bible, meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, yesterday, I had a conversation with my six-year-old daughter that went something like this. She came out on the back patio, and she said, what are you doing, Daddy? And I said, I'm looking over my sermon notes for tomorrow. And she said, what's it about, Daddy? And I said, it's about idols. And she said, oh, like American Idol? (laughs) And I said, no, baby, uh, about heart idols, about heart idols. And she said, what's that? And I said, well, it's when we love and trust something else in our hearts as much as or more than we love and trust God, our Savior. And she thought for a second and she said, wow, Daddy, that sounds fun. And then she ran back into the house. (laughs) I want you to know that in our text today, Paul is writing to tell us that there is actually nothing fun about idolatry. There's nothing fun about idolatry. We need to understand, Paul wants us to understand what idols are, how they work, and what it looks like for us as people of Jesus to flee from idolatry, to tend our own soul, pay attention to our own heart, that we might not fall into the destruction of idolatry. So let me pray for us, and then we will get back into this text. It's an important one. Almighty God, we stop and pause. We slow down our hearts, and we slow down our minds, and we turn to you, we yield to you as we open your word. And we want to just simply pray, Father, that you would speak to us this morning through your word. We want to say to you, God, we want you here this morning. We invite you here. We want to hear from you. We do, as we sang, want to be your faithful people. So would you help us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit through your word? Would Christ Jesus be honored and glorified 
turn our hearts toward him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we get right into it in verse 14. Look again at 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. It's a strong and serious command that we get from the scriptures. Paul says, therefore, in light of all the ground that we covered last week, if you were here last week, we saw the Apostle Paul took us on a history lesson back into the story of Israel to remind us that we too, God's new covenant people, are just as susceptible to temptation and to sin and to idolatry. He says, therefore, in light of our vulnerability toward pride and foolishness, in light of the tricks of Satan, and because I love you, Paul says, Paul has the heart of a father for these brothers and sisters, and because I love you, flee from idolatry. The word flee is the word shun. Paul is saying, get rid of it, run from it. It's the idea of trying to get away from something that is all around you. He says, shun it, flee from it, run from it. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he's telling us as followers of Jesus Christ, if that's you in this room this morning, that we cannot be casual about idolatry. We can't be casual about it. And the question that we ought to be asking as we come to this text, particularly verse 14, is why? What's the big deal, Paul? I mean, previously, in, in a previous chapter, he just talked about how you know, idol meat or, or, or idol festivals, the, the Corinthian church participating in uh, what was going on in their culture was a matter of conscience. But now he's saying, flee from it. What's the big deal? Well, there's something that was going on in the Corinthian church, a particular attitude uh, among the Corinthian believers toward pagan idols. They, their attitude was casual about idolatry. They were, they, were, they were simply saying things like, what's the big deal? We know that these pagan gods, Aphrodite and Athena and Apollo and Hurrah and Poseidon, these, we, we, we're Christians after all, Paul. We know that these gods are false and fake. So what's the big deal? There, it's just food after all. We're just eating the meat from the festivals. It's on sale. It's clearance meat. What's the big deal? It's just food. So what if we go to the festival? So what if we eat the meat? This was the attitude, which by the way, one thing that's important to note here is that the idolatry in ancient Corinth is, took, took a different form, but it really is no different in function than the idolatry in our day or in every day. See, the idolatry in ancient Corinth, Aphrodite and Athena and Apollo and Hurrah and Poseidon, they were idols of beauty and sexuality, people looking to beauty or sexuality to make them significant or secure, wisdom and power, looking to intellect or status to give you a sense of, of identity and purpose, health and wellness, marriage and family, power and status. It's all the same things that you and I hope in or turn to or trust in or live for. And Paul is saying this casual attitude, this flirting with idolatry is a problem. This is what he's addressing. In fact, if you remember back to chapter 6, Paul did something very similar. Do you remember chapter 6? Do you remember the issue in chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 18, 618? Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Do you remember this from chapter 6? And it was a similar attitude, a casual attitude toward sexual sin. And what does Paul do in chapter 6? Paul tries to open up our eyes to see that uh, sex isn't just sex. The body isn't just a body. He's trying to show us in chapter 6 that there's a spiritual reality that's hardwired into our sexuality, that sex is a spiritual gift that God has given to man and woman, one man, one woman, 
in marriage for the sake of cultivating unity. It's this idea of body and soul being united together. It's relational glue. It's a spiritual reality. It's not just a body. It's not just sex. In fact, if we treat it casually and if we treat it that way, it will destroy us. It's destructive. There's a spiritual reality. And so he says, flee from sexual sin. He's doing a similar thing here in this chapter. Flee from idolatry. Take it seriously. In the same way that he says there's more to sex than what meets the eye, he's saying there's more to idolatry. So three things today, if you're taking notes. We need to see the power of idolatry, the prevalence of idolatry, and the antidote to idolatry. Paul says there's more. There is power in idols. He wants us to see that though they are indeed false, they are indeed fake, they are indeed bankrupt and will not give you what they promise to give you. They are full of spiritual power. Look at verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What is the, what is the argument that Paul is making here? What is he setting up here? Well, he's saying, you're smart people, just think about it. Consider, for example, Paul is saying, the Lord's Supper. Consider the Lord's Supper. Is it just food? I mean, it's ordinary, but is it just bread? Is it just wine or juice? Or is there more to it? Is there something in it and behind it? Well, as Christians, we know that it's certainly more. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we take communion here every week. We believe that there is spiritual power in the ordinary elements of bread and juice. We, we don't believe that it's literally Jesus' body and literally Jesus' blood, but we believe that it's more than bread, right? It's more than just juice. In the same way that we believe that this book is more than just words and paper, there's power in it. There's the, the God works through it. There's spiritual presence and spiritual power in these words to move us and lead us and strengthen us and guide us and shape us. In the same way, we believe that this is true of these elements. So Paul is saying here, the Lord's Supper is a spiritual act. The key word in the text is the word participation. Paul uses it twice, and then he uses a similar word, partake, later in the text. It's the word kononia, which means fellowship. And it's not, it's not fellowship in the Southern Baptist sense of fellowship, like we share a potluck in the fellowship hall. It's not that kind of fellowship. What he's saying here is that when we take the bread and when we drink the juice, it's a uniting act. We fellowship in a spiritual reality. Christ is in it and he meets us. He says this in John 6. Jesus says this in John 6. And he fills us and he empowers us. He meets us with grace. He nourishes our faith. We fellowship with him and we fellowship with one another through the Lord's Supper. There's power, there's presence in these ordinary things, spiritual power. And we're going to talk more about the Lord's Supper, about communion when we get to chapter 11. We'll get into that more. But Paul's key point here is that while the Lord's Supper is ordinary food, Jesus's presence is behind it. He's using it for our good and for his glory in our lives. Now look what he says next in verse 19. So what do I imply? What am I saying? What's the point of bringing up the Lord's Supper? 
the food offered to that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything no i imply that what i imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons not to god i do not want you to be participants with demons i don't want you to be fellowshipping united moved by shaped by dark spiritual powers that are behind idolatry. Paul is saying that in a similar way that Jesus is here in our worship by his spirit, there are dark, demonic, Paul says, powers present in all forms of idolatry. In other words, that person in the first century that's pouring their hope into Aphrodite, looking to beauty or sexuality, sexuality to make them whole, or that person in the first century that is attending the festival of Athena in order to garner favor that they might climb the status ladder. What Paul is saying is that is not an empty activity. It's, an, it's, 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 it's empty in the sense of that it's not real. It's made up. It's stupid, it, but it's not empty. There are dark spiritual powers behind it that are pulling you in, deceiving you, twisting and distorting to make you think that something else other than the one true God will satisfy the deep longings of your soul. There's powers behind all idolatry keeping you there, keeping you enslaved, Paul is saying. Is it just food? Yes. Are they fake and false gods, man-made? Yes. Are their temples just sticks and bricks? Yes. But is there more going on behind it? Is there a spiritual reality, a spiritual battle? You better believe it. Real deception, dark spiritual powers are behind idolatry in all forms. And this explains to us why idolatry is so destructive in the lives of, of human beings, doesn't it? I mean, like, like most things, idolatry is a lot easier to see in the life of someone else than it is in your own life. Like it's easy to see that brother, that friend that you know, that is sacrificing their family at the altar of career. It's easy to watch that and go, man, work is more than work to that person. Or that sister or that friend in Christ that is chasing after and pursuing maybe it's beauty or possessions, status, ego. It's easy to see that in someone else and go, man, that's really hollow and, and, and shallow. Not a lot of depth there. They're looking to the wrong things. It's easier to see it in the lives of other people, but we, now we understand why it's so destructive, because it's not empty. Listen to what N.T. Wright says about verse 20. He says, Paul is saying that there are evil forces, demonic powers, that, that use the human worship offered to non-gods in order to gain power over the worshipers. They are semi-personal spiritual forces or powers that twist and distort God's world and dehumanize God's image bearers. This is the work of Satan from the beginning. Twist and distort God's world, God's word, and dehumanize the image bearers of God. Paul says, I do not want you to participate, to fellowship with demons. Can we just sit with that for a second? Idolatry is serious. I don't want you to give or receive, give worship to or receive from dark spiritual powers that are working behind all things 
to steal your worship, to twist and distort God's world. And here's the thing as a preacher. Um, I'm like, come on, Paul, you're killing me here, man. Paul doesn't say much else about demons. <laughs> he just kind of leaves it alone and moves on. Perhaps he doesn't want to give the Corinthian church another thing to be divided over, to argue about. He does not then give us a theology of demons. He doesn't help me out at all. But thankfully, he says a bit more in Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to hear what he says in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, listen, church, hear me. We do not live in a simply materialistic world. There are, there's a real spiritual battle that's going on all around us. And I want you to hear this. The battleground of this spiritual battle between the one true God who made you for himself, created you in his image for your glory, who has sought after you in the person and work of Jesus Christ that he might satisfy all of your desires and redeem you in his glory. The one true God is in a spiritual battle with the father of lies who exists to steal your worship, distort God's world, and destroy your life. There's a spiritual battle going on all around us, and the battleground of this spiritual battle is your heart. It's your heart. Paul is saying, I don't want you to participate with demons, brothers and sisters, beloved. Satan lives to steal and destroy what belongs to God. And you know what his primary weapon is, always has been? This is why Paul took us on a history lesson last week. It always has been his primary weapon, idolatry. What, um, what D.A. Carson calls the de-godding of God, the dethroning of God. This is his primary weapon to get you to deceive people that they can find peace and power and pleasure and happiness and purpose and anything else in the created order. To dethrone God in your heart, to put something in the creation and Put it on the throne of your heart and of your life. Paul says, don't be so naive. Don't be so casual about idolatry in your day. There's real deception and real darkness behind it. Flee it. This is the command. So we must ask, what does idolatry look like in our day? Where is there idolatry in our day? One thing that's interesting is that in the Western world, we are less religious than ever. Okay? Less religious than ever. The, grow, the, the largest demographic on any survey, no matter who does the research, the, the, most, the largest demographic that is growing right now on any kind of spiritual or religious surveys in the West is a category that's called religious nuns. Spiritual, but non-religious. So here's what that tells us. That though uh, traditional religion is declining, idolatry is everywhere. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Idolatry is everywhere. People are still seeking People are still hoping. People are still coping. People are still longing. But they're no longer looking to any organized religion. They're looking somewhere else. That, my friends, is what we call idolatry. Remember what Paul said last week? He said that though times and cultures change, the human heart does not. He says there's no temptation that is uncommon to man. That's because the human heart 
only has one mode, no matter the time or the culture. The human heart, your heart only has one mode. The only mode of your heart is to seek. It's to seek. Your heart seeks. It, it seeks today. Love, belonging, it's seeking pleasure, purpose, safety, security. Your heart is always seeking. Every person in this room, you have a seeking heart. Every person on this planet, every person that's ever lived has a seeking heart. This is why John Calvin says what he so famously said, the human heart perpetually forges idols. It's an idol factory, Calvin says, because the human heart is always longing, always hoping, always coping, always seeking. And the work of The great enemy is to convince you that what you are seeking can be found apart from God. Whether it be a fruit in the garden, whether it be a golden calf, remember that from last week? Whether it be possessions, whether it be career, whether it be the love of another person, anything under the sun but God, Satan can get behind it. In fact, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says this, He says, an idol, talking about in the Western world, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I had that, then I feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know that I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. That. That's what I'm seeking. That's what I need. That's what I'm living for, hoping in, trusting in. Keller again, he says, When anything in this life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something that you're actually working. And here's the thing that I think is important for us to realize. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. In fact, we can take good things. We can take the gifts of God's grace, his blessings in our life. And the moment that we start to live for those things, the moment that we start to love those things supremely, making them ultimate things in our life, we've made for ourselves an idol. In fact, I've known many pastors. How ironic is this? (laughs) I know many pastors who have made ministry and a stage and even a pulpit an idol. We can take good things and we can make them ultimate things. You see, Satan doesn't care what it is. He doesn't care what it is. He can get behind anything. He got behind the Greek gods and goddesses. He got behind the bales in the Old Testament. He got behind gold jewelry in the Exodus story, made a golden calf, and he can get behind a Western world as well. He can use all sorts of things. And so here's what I want to do. I want to just give us a few examples of things that I think are perhaps the most prevalent idols in our culture today. The most prevalent idols that like the, the, the Greek gods and goddesses, we're seeping into the Corinthian church. I want to just kind of give you a few things that I think are tempted, tempted, where the enemy is tempting us, where these things could be seeping into us and robbing our worship and our affection and our time and our attention from the all-satisfying Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let me give you a few. And by the way, I'm probably going to step on some toes here. So let's just, up front, I just want to tell you that up front. All right. The first one, I think, is money and materialism. Um, we live in the suburbs, Money and materialism, I think, is one of the primary idols in which Satan would love to rob your time and your attention and your affection away from the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. Nothing can capture the heart. Nothing can enslave 
people more than money and possessions. Jesus tells us this. Jesus talks about this. You see, the problem with money and, and, and materialism, this is how I think Satan uses it in our lives, is that it, it gives this illusion, this mirage of status. It gives this illusion of security and significance. This is why um, the, 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 the act of worship, the command of God for giving is so important for us as Christians. Because what God doesn't need our, your money, by the way. God, God doesn't need it. But what giving does to the church, what giving does to brothers and sisters in Christ is that it guards our heart against materialism. It protects us from trusting in money, trusting in possessions, trusting in uh, and, and living for consumerism. It keeps Jesus on the throne of our hearts. And so I think many of us are tempted to, Paul's going to say later, you can't dine at the table of Christ and the table of idols. You can't do, many of us are tempted to want to to kind of dine at Jesus's table, but then also over here really live for and hope in dollar bills in our bank account. Second one, technology. Perhaps, technology is perhaps the most prominent tool in our world today that demonic powers are using to distort God's world and dehumanize God's image bearers. Technology. Um, this, this in itself is not evil. It's neutral. <laughs> this thing is not evil. But let me tell you what I think has happened. I think th- these ideas of men to use technology in order to make life uh, more, ac- make things more accessible, to speed things up for us, to make us more prosperous. I think that evil powers have gotten behind this thing. We are more addicted than ever, addicted to social media more than ever, um, addicted to pornography more than ever, addicted to gambling and sports betting, all of it. Evil powers getting into technology, dehumanizing God's image bearers and distorting the world. It's crippling us. It's isolating us. And we need to be aware of it. Number three, politics. Uh, PSA, public service announcement. Next year is an election year, okay? Just in case you didn't know, next year is an election year. I think all that we have to do is we need to look to the vitriol, the anger, the hate on both ends of the political spectrum, and we see that there are dark powers and principalities that are behind this whole deal. Tearing people apart, fighting for people's affection and loyalty, calling us to put our hope in men or leaders or parties pulling people into crazy ideologies, even Christians that look nothing like the kingdom of God, powers, principalities. Listen, it, we need to vote. You need to vote, but you need to vote with a lot of lamenting in your heart. Like the song that we sing, come Lord Jesus, come. Don't fall into political idolatry. Guard your heart against it. Um, how about this? I'll step on my own toes. Number four, sports. Sports idolatry. Those, how many of you in this room are not sports people? Okay. You non-sports people, you, um, uh, I'm sorry. Um, you, 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 non-sports, you non-sports people, you, you look at sports and you go, it's just a game. It's just a game. And it is. But to a lot of us, to a lot of people in this room, it's not just a game. It has not become just a game. In fact, if if, if a sports team, pro, college, or an eight-year-old sports team captures your mind's attention, controls your heart's affection, 
if it has become the object of your time, of your money, if your joy, hear me, if your joy rises and falls with what happens with a ball and a goal, it is no longer a hobby for your entertainment. It has become your God. It's become your God. And I think that dark powers and principalities can get behind anything. They can get behind anything and rob the worship and the attention and the affection that it belongs to the all-satisfying Savior and lead you into destruction and death. Finally, the last one that I'll give you that I think is really prevalent in our culture today is the self, an idol of the self. Um, maybe more than just the self for some of you, the family, idol of the family. For many, your own comfort and your own convenience or your own reputation, your own image and the eyes of others has become an idol. Satan tempts you with self-worship. It's not God, it's not others whom you live to serve, it's yourself. Um, I think this is more common than we think. The temptation for us as wealthy Westerners who are educated and prosperous to think that we can architect our life in order to protect our own culture, I'm, I'm sorry, protect our own comfort and build our own kingdoms and reputation, it's a real temptation. It's an idol. Church family, we must ask ourselves this morning, what is it for us? What is it that might be ruling our hearts this morning? What is it that has become the object of our hearts seeking and our hearts hoping and our hearts trusting? Where are we Turning, and if the answer is anything else, as much as or more than God Himself, we've found our idol. And Paul says in verse 14, Beloved, flee from idolatry. How do we do that? What's the antidote to idolatry? Well, look with me at verses 21 and 22 as we close. Paul says in verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, you cannot partake, participate be united to the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy, Paul says? Paul is saying to the Christian, participation with Christ and participation with idols is essentially spiritual adultery. Do you see that? He's saying it's spiritual adultery. He's saying when you flirt with or when you give yourself to other idols, you're committing adultery against God. It's not casual. It's not a little thing. God is a lover. And he's set, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're in Christ Jesus, he's set his love upon you. Paul wants us to remember that, God is a, uh, God, that God's love is a jealous love. He says in verse 21, he set his love upon you. He's sought you and he's bought you and he's redeemed you. And he is faithful. See, that's the thing about God's covenant love is he is so faithful. We are prone to wonder, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. And the God of all grace, the God of all glory, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light is faithful to you until the end. And Paul is saying, he's reminding us of this. He wants us to see that the love of God for us in Christ Jesus will never fade, that his love will never fail you unlike your idols. In fact, oftentimes the way that God loves his people when our hearts get adulterous is he allows 
our idols to fail us. And maybe there are some of you here who have experienced that. Like I could say, can I get a witness? And you could come up here and you could testify. But here's what you would also be able to testify to. That in that moment of your world crumbling, of your idols failing you, whether it was a relationship or a business or a dream or a pursuit, whatever it might be, in the moment that it failed you, that you were there to be met by the grace of God in the gospel. He was there extending mercy to you. He was there lifting you up out of the ruins of your own making and his loving kindness. You see, hear me. This is what Paul wants us to hear. The faithful covenant love of God. Do you know what the antidote is to idolatry in the heart? It's seeing the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for us. Turning to him, seeing him as the all-satisfying Savior, seeing him for who he truly is, the answer to all of our seeking, all of our hoping, all of our longing, all of our coping. It is him, Jesus Christ, crucified for us, with us by his spirit, and promised to come again. He says, give him all your worship. He'll never fail you. He'll always be with you. He will be faithful. He has given you his all, and he wants your all. Do you blame him? Do you blame him for wanting all of our heart and all of our affection? What a savior he is, all sufficient, all satisfying. Paul will go on to say in chapter 10, verse 31, I was talking to Joshua Friesenhan about this passage before service started, and Paul will go on to say in chapter 10, verse 31, he'll say, listen, I know I've been going on and on about temples and idols and festivals and meat. He's gonna go on and say, whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God, whether you eat or drink. He's gonna, but before he can say that, he has to first warn us and wake us up from the danger of idolatry, reminding us the, the one thing, the one person, the one way, the all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, that it encourages us, it lifts us up, it teaches us, it instructs us, and today it warns us. We thank you for that. We thank you for your truth and for your grace. And as we sang earlier, that is simply the prayer that you would come, Lord Jesus, you would meet us in this moment, that you would be with us in real spiritual power, life-giving spiritual power, and that you would help us to be your faithful people. As we prepare to respond and go to the table, we do ask, Lord, that you would be in it, that you would nourish us, that you would build us up, that you would use that ordinary bread and that ordinary juice to remind us that you are good, that you are the way, that you are the truth, that you have met all of our needs, that you are sufficient for us in every way. And so as we take it, as we eat it, as it goes down deep into our bodies, would that truth go down deep into our hearts? Would you help us to flee from idolatry that we might be your faithful people? I pray that in the, this afternoon and in the days ahead and the weeks ahead in gospel communities or in the car ride home, that there would be good conversations that would be had among your people. Where is there idolatry in our, in, in our life? What's ruling our heart? And how do we surrender that? How do we dethrone that to the one true God? Be with us, lead us, move in our midst in this time of response. Minister to your people, Holy Father. In Jesus' name, Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.